Hi, I'm Mike Fian. I'm the artist on Exit Stage Left, the Sniper Plus Chronicles from DC Comics. You are listening to a podcast named Scooby Doo. Welcome to another installment of a podcast named Scooby-Doo, the show that gives you a behind-the-scenes peek at the making of this 50-year franchise of monsters, mysteries, and meddling kids through conversation and commentary. I'm your host, Mike Josek. Thanks for joining me. Now, for those of you who follow the show on social media, this episode should come as no surprise to you. And for those of you who don't follow the show on social media, this episode is going to be something of a digression from what I usually do around here. From its inception, this podcast has always been about interviewing people who have worked on the Scooby-Doo franchise and essentially crafting an oral history of the 50 years that this show has been on the air, talking to people who've worked in all the various iterations of Scooby-Doo throughout the years. But I also have a greater mandate to cover sort of the wider landscape of Hanna-Barbera shows and characters whenever the opportunity presents itself. Lately, I've really been enjoying the DC Hanna-Barbera line of books, also called Hanna-Barbera Beyond. Since 2016, from the inception of the line, these comic books have just been giving me so much joy. I mean, originally I went in really just looking at the Scooby Apocalypse book because I think like a lot of people, I was skeptical. And Scooby Apocalypse... J.M.D. Mateus and Keith Giffen were creators that I'd followed forever, almost as long as I've been collecting comic books. So, combination of Scooby-Doo and these creators that I loved, it was like, alright, I'm gonna give it a chance, I'm gonna check out this post-apocalyptic survivalist horror version of Scooby-Doo. Which ended up being really freaking good. And then I thought, okay, Jeff Parker, I'm a fan of Jeff Parker, I love the art of Evan Doc Shaner, and here's Johnny Quest, a character I love, a character I know they love. Let's see how they do. And they did just an amazing job over on Future Quest. So then I carried that on. I went to The Flintstones by Mark Russell and Steve Pugh. I honestly had the least expectations for The Flintstones. Actually, I tried Wacky Raceland first because I thought, ooh, Mad Max, Wacky Races, this will work. And it was okay. I didn't love it, but it wasn't terrible. So then I tried The Flintstones because it was the only other one out there and just bowled me over this this was like one of the best comedy books social satires smartly written beautifully drawn it was a standout book it was one of my favorite comic book releases of that year and uh, has since gone on to be nominated for three eisners so i'm not the only one but I've just loved these comic books from, from pretty much the moment that they came out. And I'm at the point now where, you know, we've had Dastardly and Muttley, We've had Future Quest Presents. We've had The Jetsons, Rough and Ready, and Mark Russell's second Hanna-Barbera book, Exit Stage Left, The Snagglepuss Chronicles, which, like the first round, some of them are better than others. But no regrets, no regrets. These, these are fun books. These are books that I would recommend that anybody try. They are wonderful reimaginings and spins on these characters and concepts 
and really work, I think, for fans of any intensity. I wouldn't go so far as to say any age because some of these are actually mature books, but if you're not checking out the DC Hanna-Barbera books, even if you're not a comic book person, like at the very least, if, if you're a Scooby fan, maybe try Scooby Apocalypse, try the Flintstones. Those are two really good books to sort of get your feet wet. I think the Flintstones has a really broad appeal and I think for the Scooby fans, Scooby Apocalypse is just a really neat way to kind of contextualize these characters and examine these characters and uh, Demetrius and Giffen have been doing such a great job. The artists have been doing a great job. I keep saying that. A great job. Everyone's doing a great job. Check them out. And if you're checking me out on social media, I'm tweeting about them all the time. But basically, because I'm such a fan of these books, I wanted to do a series of interviews uh, with the creators of these books. I wanted to ask questions. I wanted to take a deep dive, uh, really get into the development and storytelling process of these comics. And since this show is kind of my tool for doing so, and because it did fit under the purview of if it's Hanna-Barbera, it technically works, I decided to do a series of interviews talking to these creators. I've already spoken to a few of them. I've been having a great time. It's been so much fun. I think there's some really cool stuff in store for you guys and this series kind of down the road. But to kick it all off, I've got none other than Mark Russell, who is the writer of The Flintstones and Exit Stage Left, The Snagglepuss Chronicles. Now, prior to writing the Hanna-Barbera books, Mark had written two humor books, God is Disappointed in You and Apocrypha Now. After that, he got a gig with DC Comic Books writing Prez, which was a reboot of an old 60s character who was basically the first teen president. Uh, he did this book with Ben Caldwell, who's done a number of covers for Hanna-Barbera books. And then Mark jumped onto the Flintstones, did 12 issues of the Flintstones, and then last year it was announced that he'd be doing Exit Stage Left, the Snagglepuss Chronicles. And for the last five months, We've been getting monthly installments of Mark's take on Snagglepuss as a Southern Gothic playwright in McCarthyism-era America. It's just such a great read as a, as a history nut, as an animation nut, as somebody who's just really enjoying the, the satire and the social and political commentary. It's just one of the best books being published out there and it's it's about this pink cartoon mountain lion named snagglepuss who we remember from saturday morning cartoons well some of us remember him from saturday morning cartoons i suppose there's a whole generation that only remembers remember snagglepuss from uh, reruns on like cartoon network or teletoon anyways mark was super generous with his time and he sat down to chat with me we took a deep dive on the material uh i had a lot of questions and mark Mark was very informative and a really gracious guest. I'm thrilled that I can kick off this series of DC Hanna-Barbera interviews with our discussion of his Eisner Award-nominated Flintstones comic book series. Part 2 should be coming out in about a week. It's going to come out to time out with the Snagglepuss issue 6. So I think that's a week, a week and a half. And part two mostly talks about Snagglepuss and, uh, and a few other things. So that's how the two parts are going to be broken up. And I've probably been talking for way too long now. This is probably the longest introduction I've done to the show yet. So I'm sure you're all chomping at the bit to get to the interview. 
I won't keep you any longer. I hope you enjoy it. Without further ado, I give you my conversation with Mark Russell. We'll see you on the other side. Step aside, Pagliacci, whilst the captain warms up. So I'm talking with Mark Russell, who is a writer of a couple of really phenomenal DC Hanna-Barbera books, uh, first one being The Flintstones, and uh, the latest being, oh sorry, I was about to say Snagglepuss, technically exit stage left, The Snagglepuss Chronicles. <laughs> Welcome to the show, Mark. Thanks. So uh, for the sake of the listeners, could you give a little background of yourself? How did you get into comics? I know you've got some satirical novels, or not novels, are they novels? No, they're they're actually sort of humorous nonfiction. I wrote a couple of books about the Bible. Uh, one called "God Is Disappointed in You," which is just sort of a modernized retelling of the Bible, uh, where all the books of the Bible are condensed down to like three or four pages each. So it's a really easy way to to read the Bible and understand what's in it. And then I did a follow up book uh, with Shannon Wheeler, who is a, a cartoonist who uh, does too much Coffee Man in the New Yorker. We did that book, and we did a follow up about the books that didn't make it into the Bible, called Apocrypha. Now, a couple years ago, DC or Hanna Barbera, somebody comes up with the idea to make these Hanna Barbera books through DC. Four books get launched, one of them being yours, which was the Flintstones. How did you get involved with that? When did you first hear about the DC Hanna Barbera idea? Well, I'd done a comic for uh, DC before the Hanna-Barbera stuff uh, called Prez about the uh, about the first teenager uh, to become president, also the first person to be elected president via Twitter. It's a reboot of a comic they did in 1973 yeah. that was uh, uh, written by Joe Simon of uh, Captain America fame. But uh, they liked my work on that, uh, so when the Hanna-Barbera stuff came out, they thought my style and my sense of humor would work well for the Flintstones. So they offered me the Flintstones based on Prez. And then they offered me, uh, or Snagglepuss actually, I got to do because of uh, some, some Facebook posts I was writing, where I was doing like <laughs> just sort of weird lines from like Snagglepuss and Huckleberry Hound as if they were sort of these gay Southern playwrights, you know, like Tennessee Williams. And, and, and my, my editor, Marie, was, was reading them. I was like, are you serious about this? Because we could actually do a comic based entirely on these, these Facebook posts. <laughs> And I hadn't really considered actually pitching it as a comic until then, but then when she said that, it's like, oh, yes, this, this this has to be. I know with a book like Scooby Apocalypse, just to throw a Scooby reference in there, since we are technically a Scooby podcast, I know Jim Lee had done some background work. I'm not really sure about the other books. Did you have any sort of foundational stuff that was there when you came in, or were you sort of given carte blanche with, uh, with the Flintstones? I was given pretty much carte blanche. As always, the one sort of rigor that I have to write by is I can't write anything that's going to get them sued. Uh, <laughs> so, so things were, were, you know, I had to be careful in terms of using the likenesses of famous people in the, the Flintstones, especially famous people with litigious estates. But really, other than that, they did not give me too, they didn't really do too much, too much to make me color within the lines. They let me just kind of go nuts. And, and nuts I did. It was, to come clean, The Flintstones was probably the book, when they did the announcement, that I was least interested in. I was a Scooby fan, so of course Scooby Apocalypse was on the list. Wacky Raceland sort of piqued my interest. Huge Quest fan, so Future Quest. And I thought, Flintstones, what can they possibly do with that? And I came to it late, about halfway through the run. And I thought, okay, well, I've tried the other books, so let's try this one. And hands down, man, like, that was... In my little research reread that I just did in the last couple days, I'm still laughing out loud at those jokes. Like... It's so on point. Well, thanks. Yeah, I uh, 
I think because it was the franchise people were probably the least interested in out of all the Hanna-Barbera titles, it, it kind of worked in my favor in that I had the freest reign to sort of like just remake it in my own image uh, than, than if it had been something that, that people were really deeply passionate about or that Hanna-Barbera still had a lot invested in. But because the, fran- the, the Flintstones are kind of, they really only exist as a franchise as, uh, as vitamin pills now. <laughs> or as fruity pebbles because they're it's sort of a dead franchise i i think they they said well what's you know it's like operating on a corpse it's like you know what's the worst that can happen just let him do what he wants yeah i mean it's i mean for me with the exception of scooby uh it was probably one of the more familiar ones because i grew up every lunchtime i'd come home for lunch and they'd have flintstones on the tv and maybe that was part of the reason why I wasn't super excited because it was it's that domestic suburban sitcom scenario, and I was like, what could you possibly do with this? And you just you opened that up. The the, the scope of the book is huge. Yeah, the interesting part of the, the Flintstones wasn't was wasn't the fact that it was like a domestic comedy because, like you say, you know, we, we had a million of those, and there's only so much to be said about the nuclear family. I mean, uh, but for me, the thing the the, the area of the the story that was ripe for exploration and which really fascinated me about it was that it's the world's first civilization. So I made it more uh, uh, about like what it would be like for people with all the same sort of noble attributes and frailties of modern humans to be living in the world's first civilization. How would they make the mistakes we're still paying for today? Or, and, and how would they, they, they tell themselves that what was going on around them was horribly misguided? How would they come to that conclusion? And it really did create like the perfect playground to address all the hot topics of modern civilized life. Yeah, I think all. I mean, I, I kind of approach it as a work of science fiction, and I think all science fiction is at its heart really a work of satire. It's really about things that are wrong with the present put in a different time and place. It's a way. It's a. It's a device of psychotherapy whereby writers can figure out what they really feel about the world and their place in it by abstracting it to another planet or to another time era. And that's really what I, I, I think the, the, the Flintstones works as, as a, as a work of that science fiction, less than as a, as a domestic comedy. I think part of the beauty of that book, too, is at no point do I feel like you're winking at the audience or saying, like, look at this outrageous thing that I'm doing. Like, there seems to be an actual love for the, for the world or the characters. There's some real heart to it. Thanks. And I think that's really essential, especially when you're writing something that's kind of caustic and satirical. It's just going to come across as whining or as uh, sort of meanness, unless you actually have a genuine affection for people or the characters you're writing about, or you know, unless you really are invested in the game. It's going to come across as though you're you're you know just sort of mean spirited and and not entirely sincere. And I really did not want to do that at all. I wanted it to be about. I wanted to put myself. And into those characters and something I loved about them, even though I had to do horrible things to them. I think that's that's the price of admission for being a writer is that you have to be willing to do horrible things to people you genuinely care about in the context of your writing, because that's the only way the reader actually feels their pain. That was the other thing that just really struck me about the book, too, is that it's not just jokes and gags and laughs and stuff like there's some. There's some real pathos. There's the whole, uh, is it the Pleistocene War? Oh, the, the Bedrock Wars. The uh, Bedrock Wars, yeah. yeah. Having the characters dealing with PTSD and... Yeah, well, that's the dark secret of every civilization. There is no civilization, uh, still around anyway, that just came to an empty piece of land and said, well, let's settle here. They're all kind of like bought and paid for with the blood of the previous inhabitants. And so I don't know, you know, I don't know why we would assume that Bedrock would be any different. 
That's the original. That's to me. That's the real original sin. I think the Bible uses, you know, the this whole story of the Garden of Eden and eating the apple and the knowledge of good and evil as sort of a metaphor for the real original sin in that every civilization, every people kind of had to murder the people on the land before them and in doing so lost their innocence in order to become a civilization. Like so many of the best stories. I mean, it has, yeah, just a great balance between the really ridiculously funny and the really uncomfortably dark, <laughs> unsettling stuff. Yeah, really, there's nothing to laugh at but human tragedy. I mean, it's really the only thing that makes a good joke. Seeing Barney dealing with having to, like, go to war, that whole issue with the tree people, I'm laughing, but there's a part of me inside that's just sort of weeping. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's the appropriate reaction. I think, yeah, it's like, oh, this is too terrible not to laugh at. And the artist Steve Pugh, like, it just knocked it out of the park, the the expressions and the characters. and Yeah, that was incredibly important, I think, for for this project, because so much of it, as you said, is sort of invested in the pathos and the... Uh, emotional reaction of the characters and the horrors they're living through, uh, that I really needed somebody who could kind of master both the cinematic sweep of this of this Stone Age civilization and yet the intimate details of human angst and internal royal. And that's what Steve he excelled at both. He really nailed both both departments. I was honestly surprised when I saw Steve's name attached to it because I've enjoyed Steve's work in the past, but it did this didn't seem like if I had to pick the artist for the Flintstones, his would not be the first name that came up. And now I can't imagine anybody else doing it. <laughs> yeah, and that's largely, I think, the, the genius of Marie Javens, my editor. She is like a, a, a sixth sense when it comes to like picking sort of unintuitive artists to to work with. But it always works out. The artist she always picks. I, I'd never heard of you know Mike Fian. I knew nothing about his work, but he has been just perfect for Snagglepuss. And the same with Steve. Like you say, like people are like who's doing the Flintstones, the, the, the animal man guy, you know, and, yeah. and but, it, but, it, but it made perfect sense once you saw it, but it's the sort of thing that, that it really took like an eye for talent, like Marie's to see before, before, you know, he was able to do it, that this was the right match. The development process for the Flintstones, how did you approach that? <laughs> well, I, I've written a brief pitch that, that was just kind of more, it wasn't even really about the plots. It was more about the characters. Uh, it was more about like how I wanted the characters they're, and and they're, they're different sort of perspectives on civilization. Like Fred is somebody who, with a golden heart, who wants to believe that modern progress is for the best, but he's open to he's he's a living soul. He he's open to the idea. He, he's sensitive to the to the things, the tragedies as they happen around him. Uh, Wilma is uh, dissatisfied with domestic life and wants to be an artist, and so civilization at once gives her that opportunity and yet thwarts her. And Betty's just somebody who's like completely bought in. She just wants you know, the latest things, and she she is, is nothing but but faith and belief in civilization. She's ultimate optimist. Uh, the source of her sadness being that she really wants the sort of classic domestic life, and they aren't able to have it because her and Barney aren't able to conceive children you know, at first. And uh, and Barney's kind of like I described him. This sounds super pretentious, but this is how I described him in the pitch: is is like the holy fool. He's he's the guy who um, goes along with what Fred does. But, but but puts what Fred is doing or puts what's happening around him in such blunt terms that you can't help but sort of like think that he's he's mocking it or he's, he's explaining and you know with, without realizing you know the tragedy of the situation and and yeah and then from there I just kind of thought about topics that I wanted to talk about and one of course was you know the original sin of civilization which is conquest and uh, then commercialism and sort of 
the, the dangers of uh, demagoguery and politics and all of these issues just kind of like each sort of informed a different issue of uh, the Flintstones. Uh, it's interesting to find out that you, you did approach it like from character that way because initially I would probably look at it and think you came at it mostly from topic just because each issue has that very like pronounced, yeah. you know, yeah, this is this true. issue and this is... Right. Uh, but you say the character and I immediately went to seeing Fred, you know, talking about the guy who was buried under the boulders or, or even Fred talking about why he wanted to be married to Wilma or Wilma talking about why she does the, the handprint paintings. And they were always these moments in the issues where I was genuinely touched. Like I kind of would slow down my reading and, and just really kind of absorb it. And I was like, this is, this is good stuff, man. <laughs> okay. Yeah. That's always my goal is to slow people's reading down. Cause I hate it when I see somebody, reading a comic book and there's flip flying through the pages because it's like you have no idea how much time and struggle people put into writing and drawing that and you're just flipping through it like 10 seconds a page and and yeah it's really written to make you sort of like think about the lines and think about what's being said so thank you for for, for, for following your role for a minute and getting you know really absorbing the, the lines i think that's that's uh, ultimately the, the respect that that writers need in order to encourage good work and, it's always yeah. a surprise, too, because they always say, like, in comic books, particularly, it's one of the few mediums where the reader controls the pace at which you read or you consume the media that you're consuming. You don't necessarily notice it as you're doing it, but then after the fact, you're like, I just got manipulated. <laughs> and it's nice to it's nice to see the writer or the artist or whoever it is uh, just kind of quietly come behind you and put their hand on your back and sort of lead you through it and yeah, to do it so it, subtly, yeah. Dan Klaus uh, said that this is probably the one medium with the, 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 uh, the highest ratio between work involved and, and least amount of time it takes to enjoy. <laughs> He described uh, like when uh, uh, Wilson came out, he was signing books at a bookstore, and someone came in the store and didn't realize what was going on, or you know, but then like picked up a copy of Wilson and stood in line behind everyone else and was reading the book while they were in line. And by the time they'd got him to front, they'd finished the book and they'd put it back on the shelf and walked out. <laughs> so that's you know what you kind of struggle against is is writer in this medium. And I love writing in comics, but it's so. It's so consumable, so so easily digestible that it's hard to write something that that you that you want to like be meaningful and to be worth reading twice, knowing that somebody's just going to probably spin through it and then uh, move on to the next thing. But I think that that it really is kind of incumbent upon the writers to change people's perspective of of the medium, and I think that perspective has. I mean, this isn't like a brand new thing. What comics can be serious literature? This is like a I think an argument that's been settled for thirty years now. But I think I think it, you know the more we can make comics something that's a sincere meditation on the world around us, and less just sort of like you know professional wrestling starring superheroes, uh, the more the readers will come to respect it. The um, the background stuff. Uh, I was going to talk about sort of Steve later, but might as well just get into it now since we're talking about uh, how the book makes you slow your roll a little bit. There's so much going on on each page. Either the just going through and looking at the names of the shops or characters doing things in the background. There's just a lot of business. And I was wondering, yeah. was a lot of that in the script or was a lot of that just Steve? Yeah, uh, most, I, I, well, I don't know if I say most, but a lot of it was in the script uh, because precisely for that reason, because I wanted people to have to spend a minute or two just looking at a page 
and getting all the jokes, like little Easter eggs, like all the. In fact, issue number one, I wanted to establish this very early. I did a two-page spread that was basically that first splash, yeah, yeah, um, a map of Bedrock. It said in my art notes, and then I just gave a list of businesses I wanted in Bedrock: the big and Neanderthal men's clothing store, <laughs> Mammoth, Mammoth, Thank You Mammoth, the you know the artisanal Mammoth store, Spears and Roebuck, the the gay bar Homo Erectus. I wanted all of these things in there. And, and I think once I did that, Steve sort of got it. He got the sensibility, and he kind of constructed the whole town based upon those notes. And every one of those places is not just sort of a throwaway gag. They all appear in the plot yeah. of the story. And and then it also kind of inspired Steve to come up with his own things and put them in the background. So there's a lot of the jokes. Some of them I don't even get. Some of them are like references to British things because he lives in England. But there's... Uh, we. We both started coming up with more and more sort of background gags or details to give us that sort of third dimensionality to the to the world that these characters inhabit. But to me, I think when you're writing a science fiction or when you're writing something uh, that's not happening in our, our current world, world building becomes that much more important because it's what let, lets people buy into like, oh, this is an actual place that this person has thought about or that, you know, it's not just like a, a setting for jokes. It's an actual world that's inhabited by actual people. Now, with the Flintstones, I mean, world-building fine, but there's a particular idiom in Bedrock where everything does have, you know, stone or rock or... Like, yeah, did that, sort of stone Did that flow once you got into it, or was that... You really had to rack your brain? Other things were natural, flowed really easy. Other things were, uh, you know, a, a little less intuitive. I had to really kind of stretch. Like, oh, who would be, like, a rock-based stand-in for, like, Carl Sagan? And and then like well, I I came up I'm looking over rock terms I came across like uh, Sargon which I forget what it is but it's like a, a rock related term so he had to become Sargon Professor Carl Sargon although I think we ever used Carl because again yeah. I didn't want to get us sued so he's Professor Sargon uh, even though everyone knows oh it's Carl Sagan or like uh, Stony Danza that one was an <laughs> easy one I just needed somebody and, uh, and that it was he kind of fell in that perfect sort of ecozone of celebrity where everybody knows who Tony Danza is, but he's not like, you know, um, a huge star anymore. He's somebody who's kind of like, I don't mean to be mean to, to Tony Danza, but, you know, about 20 years removed from, like, his real yeah. cultural relevance. So it's just the kind of, like, celebrity you'd get to do, like, a public service announcement or that would sign on. Basically, I try to think, well, like, what, what kind of celebrity would, would appear at, like, President Trump's inauguration? You know, what... A sort of BC list celebrity would would go to that sort of thing. That's kind of what I wanted to do, like the public service announcements for uh, closing down the children's hospital. And I, you know, I, again, I don't mean to be an insult. I don't mean this to be an insult to Tony Danza. I have no idea what his politics are or anything. He'd be a wonderful man. Uh, it, he just fell under the knife because his his name was really easy to turn into a stone based pun. So you said uh, you had to avoid not getting uh, DC sued. Can you say any names or characters that you wanted to introduce that you couldn't or, or thought would maybe be a little too risky? Um, I don't remember. I don't remember uh, who they, they, they nixed. We had a number of issues with, with Snagglepuss. Like uh, they, I, Marilyn Monroe is a character and Joe DiMaggio is also a character. But they wouldn't let me say Joe DiMaggio or Marilyn Monroe. We had to have sort of plausible deniability. So I had to refer to her as Miss Monroe or Marilyn. So I chose Marilyn. Because, uh, knows. When you see the character and you, someone calls her Marilyn, you instantly know who it is. So yeah. I think good enough. You know, but yeah, it's kind of, there's these weird rules that don't seem to make any sense considering that these are not only 
celebrities. They're they're historical figures. I mean, if I were writing, if, if Julius Caesar was the show, would I have to refer to him as Julie C? You know, <laughs> Jay Caesar. Uh, why? I mean, to me, it's like they're the the estates of famous people have kind of like I think are are hurting ability our ability to to um, assess our history in a, in a fair and in an accurate way because they turn basically what are what is our history into a intellectual property. And really, I mean, with the Maryland thing, like you weren't taking it too far off an already known track. Like, no, the, it's not like I had her snorting. The Arthur that she was with was Arthur Miller, right? Yeah, no, this is yeah. all you know, loosely based upon things that actually happened, just me filling in the details with my imagination. But yeah, and they, I don't think any of them were particularly insulting. They're all kind of like have their their frailties and their and their endearing qualities too. I, I think what I was really trying to do is just show that you know these these icons. Uh, have real lives and, and, and vulnerabilities, which of course is what the, the McCarthy era sort of exploited. It exploited the fact that these icons are actually human people with, with real vulnerabilities to get them to do the work of an icon for the state, for for their, their agenda. Well, I think Snagglepuss pretty much sums one of the major themes of the whole book up, like on the first page or second page where he's sitting in the dilemma with lila and he says people only know a man from seeing the things that he doesn't show them i believe was the line yeah. people uh uh you only know somebody when you see the parts they don't show you yeah and i mean it, that that comes it, in like repeatedly as the as the show or the series goes on and that's our that's all of our vulnerabilities and when you force somebody to live uh, their lives in secret or in the closet then they are almost entirely vulnerability they're almost entirely you know, you've, you've made that person, a, you know, a target and somebody who can't really live an authentic life. And how do you, and since creativity is all about, like, talking about authenticity and life as you experienced it, how do you expect people to live meaningful, artistic lives? And how do you expect them to create as, as well as they can if they aren't allowed to live real lives? Were there any things you listed or you, you mentioned some things that you kind of couldn't put in? just for the sake of litigious estates or whatever. Was there anything that you were told you had to include? Well, initially they wanted it to be like really sort of uh, like a, an homage to the original. And I'm not talking about DC. DC wanted me to do what, wanted me to do what I felt was right. But the Hannah Rivera licensing people gave me some notes uh, like, oh, please don't mention any deities. Or, you know, um, Fred should say, yabba dabba do once an issue. Unironically, apparently. Uh, so <laughs> I love how you worked that in. I chafed at that and I kind of told them, you see that the notes I got from the Hanna Barbera people were kind of unworkable for the vision. And DC was very understanding. They're like, Oh no, those are just suggestions. You know, don't, don't worry about that. Just, just do the way you had, had pitched it, the way you envisioned it and we'll stand behind you. And, and they did. Bringing up the Yabba Dabba Do and, and how that was worked in is essentially like a stress coping thing. And I mentioned the PTSD earlier, the Water Buffalo Lodge, you totally rework. Yeah. So it's basically a veteran support group, um, which made much more sense to me. It felt much more relevant than turning it into like sort of like a rotary club or a, or a gentleman's club, you know, which might have been more relevant in the 1960s, but feels horribly out of date to me today. And what we do have today yeah. that would make more sense is a lot of veterans who've fought in experienced really traumatic things in a war. And so in talking about the modern world and through the, the prism of the Flintstones, it just made much more sense to turn the Water Buffalo Lodge into like a, 
uh, a center for for veterans dealing with PTSD or looking for jobs or just a place for them to hang out and you know share their experiences. Were you a fan of the franchise prior to working on it? Not real. Well, <laughs> fans I, may be a strong word. Yeah, I, I mean, I was like you. I watched it when I got home from school because it was what was on. You know, it was a cartoon, so I assumed it was for kids, and it was you know, so I watched it. But I don't remember. You know, I wasn't. I was never really a huge fan. I never really thought the Flintstones was was that great. I, I did like, however, and this is one thing I really tried to draw upon heavily when, when making it. The one thing I really did like about the Flintstones was all the little animal-based invention, all the little animal-based tools. Although even then, it really struck me how horrifying that would be to have an animal whose whole existence was built around doing this one function, you know, just sitting there like having to be a coat rack or, you know, living underneath the sink to, to eat garbage. I think your vacuum cleaner bowling ball relationship was the most heartbreaking thing of 2017. <laughs> oh, yeah. It, in comics. And again, how Steve sold that with the artwork. Like, yeah, just well, amazing. It, 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 you know, vacuum cleaners, like somebody lives his entire life in darkness. And bowling ball was like the one ray of light in that darkness. And I mean, how could that be anything but like, but beautiful and tragic at the same time? Was that, uh, you said that was something that had kind of always attracted you or something you always liked about the original series. When you got this, the gig, were you like, I need to go into that hard, like this is something I really want to explore? Yeah. Or is that something always, that just came organically? No, it was always something I, like an angle I wanted. I wanted the appliances to be characters in their own rights. And I wanted, you know, cause I, I wanted it to be about civilization and the other sort of cardinal sin of civilization is uh, the division of labor. The fact that people who are used to people and animals that are used to living natural lives according to you know their instincts and you know uh, the way they evolved to live are now suddenly put into situations where they have to do one thing all the time every day. They're not living these these lives that they, they, they that that they had evolved to live, where they're pro constantly move, on the move and solving problems. So while being a hunter gatherer was a much more natural way for humans in, in, to live, and of course animals. Their wild habitat was a much more natural way for them to live. The price we pay for being in a civilization is that none of us gets to live that natural existence anymore. We're all confined within like this one or these these, these small tedious roles that make us useful to this this machine of civilization. I laughed when you said appliances, just because immediately I went to appliance, please, which when they're uh, basically trashing Dino <laughs> yeah, or, or just talking amongst each other. Uh, it just always made me chuckle when I saw it. And it also kind of brings up the the idea, like the, the weirdness of the appliances is that even in the show, they were always able to talk. So they yeah. had the ability to speak and think and they and express themselves, but then they were also doing all of these menial tasks and just doing the one task. And yeah. thinking of it in those terms, yeah, that's kind of dark. That's kind of... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, and one note that the Hanna-Barbera licensing people gave me that actually turned out to be really helpful, and I actually kind of like spawned a lot of these ideas was they said the animals can talk, but they can't. They can never talk to humans, and humans can never talk to animals. They they talk, but only within their own sort of cohort. And to me, I thought, oh, that's brilliant. That's like uh, upstairs, downstairs. It's like the servants, you know, have their own lives downstairs, and they talk about the people upstairs. And the upstairs have people, you know, the, 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 the lords and ladies have no idea what the servants think about them or the horrors they're putting them through in their everyday lives because they can never really bridge that gap in communication. Speaking of the the lingo in the book, like the appliance police, there's so many things in there like straight chili or hit you in the beef. 
again, every time I see it, I just can't help but guffaw or chuckle. Are those those are actually, are those things? Did you come up with those, or is that something that them up on the fly? They just sounded weird. They sound like something just, like somebody's uncle would say, like at a picnic or something. You know, I um, most of my relatives, you know, live in sort of rural or semi-rural America, so they all have these sort of weird cracker barrel sayings that don't make sense in you know in any context really. But which, which are super fun and creative to hear. Uh, so I, I tried to employ some of that, not only in uh, the Flintstones, but I tried to use a lot of that sort of original idiom in uh, Snagglepuss too. So I always find those more interesting than you know the the catchphrase or the you know the sort of the, the, the metaphor, the, the cliche that we've heard a hundred times. Now, just before we go into Snagglepuss, was the series always meant to be twelve issues? Pretty early. Scoop? I think when we started, it was like open ended. But I had a conversation, I think, pretty soon after issue number one came out with my editor, like, you know, I don't know how long I'm going to be able to sustain this. And she said, well, what do you feel is comfortable? And I said, uh, well, I at least want to get one trade paperback out, maybe two. And she said, okay, perfect, we'll do 12 issues. And so we agreed right, you know, pretty early on, yeah, we'll do 12 issues. David Mamet has a uh, has a quote where he said that writing a play is like running a marathon, and writing for television is like writing until you die, <laughs> or running until yeah, and so uh, running until you die. So I didn't want this to be running until I died. I wanted to quit while I feel felt like I could still make it good, and not just going until people lost interest. So twelve issues seemed like a good sort of number. We get two even trade paperbacks out of it, and I can quit while I feel like I'm still being relevant. That's fair. As much as I would love more, it is kind of this perfect arc, and and that last issue with Gazoo and Dino, that was, or what were they called? The the organization that was coming to judge us. Oh, the Neighborhood Association. Yes, the Neighborhood Association. Yeah, it was, I was surprised how well it wrapped up. Also just, again, how touching of an end it was it uh yeah, it really it left me with of, a lot of good feelings <laughs> yeah I, I felt like the whole series in a way was that was kind of what i wanted to end with was like the great kazoo comes to earth as this sort of game warden just to like make betting odds on on the human race and our likelihood of survival him sort of like coming to like this this sort of bittersweet conclusion about humanity i wanted that it to sort of culminate and like give me a chance to say uh what i felt like uh, about the human race, but through the eyes of Gazoo having witnessed how we deal with all these other issues over the, the course of the 12 issues. It really nicely kind of closes that thesis statement about civilization. Thanks. Yeah. yeah. And uh, it ends on kind of a happy note because Gazoo is able to go home and everyone's waving goodbye to him and the human race isn't maybe such a disaster as he'd originally feared. Do you have more stories? Would you return if, if they asked? Yep. Yeah, in fact, you know, I I did return once. I I did a Christmas uh, booster gold yes. uh, Flintstones crossover, and I you know we talked about doing maybe one that focused on Pebbles and Bam Bam. Uh, okay. Like them in school, and then uh, but yeah, I would I would I would go back and do some more if I if I had some more ideas. Uh, I'd do another six issue run or something. By the way, that Booster Gold special, when they're puppeteering the dead body to convince them that their deity is alive, <laughs> that was, I just, I had to put the book down. It was one of the most insane things. Because the story, probably because it was a crossover with Booster Gold, the story was 
sort of more traditional and a little more tame than what I was used to with the Flintstones. And then the whole thing just sort of went bonkers at the end. Yeah, it was really more my attempt to write a Booster Gold comic than it was. I mean, the Flintstones were just kind of along for the ride, but I wasn't writing in really my Flintstones voice because yeah. I'd done that for 12 issues. So I wanted to try something new. So it's really more about what it would look like if I wrote a Booster Gold comic than if I were doing more Flintstones. <laughs> So there you have it. That was part one of my conversation with DC Hanna-Barbera writer Mark Russell. I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed putting it together. And if you did, be sure to join me again in two weeks, June 6th, I believe, when I'll be dropping part two of the interview. I'm hoping to time it out with the release of Exit Stage Left, The Snagglepuss Chronicles number six. If memory serves, June 6th is that date. So mark your calendar. And I've been talking to Mark about maybe releasing some process stuff on the blog to go with that episode. So watch for that on a blog named Scooby-Doo, wordpress.com slash Scooby-DooCast. It's definitely something to look forward to. Something I always look forward to is hearing from you guys, hearing what you think of the episode, hearing uh, what you think of the podcast in general, or just what you're thinking. So feel free to reach out either on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter. Just search a podcast named Scooby-Doo. Otherwise, I'm usually at Scooby-Doocast. I've also got a Gmail if you want to contact by Gmail, scoobypodcast.gmail.com. And if you're visiting the social media, like, share, follow, subscribe. And if you get the show off of iTunes, like a lot of people do, while you're there, rating and reviewing the show is a big help. It's a quantifiable way to actually get people to notice the show and grow the audience because it goes into all the crazy algorithms and when people go searching for Scooby-Doo podcast or animation podcast, maybe APNSD gets a bit of a bump and comes up higher in the search and people actually get to find and experience the show. So if you love the show and you want to support the show, rating and reviewing it. It's really helpful. I'd appreciate it. No pressure though. I'm not trying to peer pressure you though. I mean... We're all free-thinking human beings here. You gotta do what you gotta do. So I'm pretty sure that's all the blurby stuff I'm supposed to throw in there. I, if I'm missing something, I'll, I'll be sure to, to add it in in part two. Oh, and if you want to find Mark online, uh, just go onto Twitter and search at Manrus, M-A-N-R-U-S-S, and uh, you can follow him there. So thank you guys so much for following me, following the show listening checking it out uh it's always a pleasure you guys are the best and i hope you're looking forward to part two as much as i am stuff is just getting good so take care stay cool and we'll see you next time on a podcast named scooby-doo